Hello, you're listening to Talking Blues. My name is Dinuk Ujjaratna. I'm a composer, conductor, and pianist. Let me start by saying I have known you for a few years. I had the chance to work with you when you were working with Afiara uh, on, on Spin Cycle. Yes. And I know I know your of your abilities as a composer based on that and also the work we did in the summer um, with both um, the Identity Project and also with the composition for the Banff International String Quartet Competition. Mm-hmm. However, what blew me away was watching you. I got to edit uh, your performance on the Identity song cycle. And your piano playing was just spectacular. Oh, thank you. And, and, you know, so I know you as a composer. I've heard your works and I thought that's pretty amazing. But to actually watch you and think, oh, my God, he's like a jazz, like a high level jazz musician. (laughs) And I don't know how if you think that way, but it was quite impressive. Oh, thank you. I don't think of myself that way. I just think of someone who is an improviser. I mean, I improvisation is very at the heart of how I think as a musician. And I've just sort of kept those piano skills up. And I definitely wanted to be a part of the project in the sense that I wanted to be on stage, you know. And aside from all of the classical commissions I'm constantly working on, I have projects where I'm playing as an improviser with really wonderful musicians, you know, non-classical musicians, world musicians, some of whom don't read Western notation. And that's just been a terrific experience. So I presume piano came first. I, I don't know if that was your first instrument, but um, if we were to break down who you are, then the, being the musician would be the first thing that, that happened to you. Was, 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 was it, did it start with the piano? It pretty much did. So I'm, uh, I'm from Sri Lanka. I was born in Sri Lanka. And then when I was four years old, my parents moved to Dubai in the Middle East. And uh, uh, before the piano, I actually, uh, I think maybe played just for about a year or so, I played the uh, mirdangam, which is a South Indian percussion instrument, fantastic instrument. And then I switched to piano because, you know, we had family friends who, uh, my mom's uh, closest friend was a piano teacher. And it was decided that I couldn't really keep the two different techniques going at the same time. And I wanted to learn to read Western classical notation and, and learn the piano. So the piano started uh, when I was about nine years old. And did it come easy to you? I was very fascinated with the music theory aspect. I think probably because, you know, I, I was already a composer and I didn't know it, but I was, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that, you know, the music meets math kind of angle. Um, but interestingly, I didn't enjoy or I didn't really get playing the piano for a good three years until I came across a situation in school, in high school, where I think when I was 12, I was taught a little bit of music history. And then once I had that sort of context for how these people were creating music that was appealing to me, then it all started to really slot into place. And then from the age of 12, I was just totally obsessed. I had... Uh, what I would describe as my first spiritual experience, which had nothing to do with religion. I I heard a recording of Mozart's music. And it was the first movement of a piano concerto, number 21. The slow movement actually is the one that is very famous, you know. But I heard the first movement, and I just remember distinctly this, this sort of orchestral introduction leading up to the arrival, majestic arrival of this piano. And then just all these voices talking to each other. And I just thought, this is it. You know, uh, I just couldn't fathom how someone had been able to put together all of these voices into some kind of coherent whole. And from that moment on, I wanted to be close to this thing. Close to this thing in terms of as a player, uh, as a musician or as a composer? That's a good question. I think I probably did not think as a player. I just thought, you know, again, the piano was just one medium. I wanted to be close to it conceptually and just think, well, 
whatever I can do to understand it. So a little bit more of music history, a little bit more piano practice. And then I started uh, dabbling in writing my own music. And what kind of music was that? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, it was it was like, you know, seventh rate Mozart. Um, <laughs> and, and you have to remember that. So it was really fascinating growing up in Dubai because you didn't, you know, in the 80s and 90s, because you didn't have access to what young musicians here in Canada would have access to. Like, I couldn't just join a youth orchestra if I wanted to. Um, you, you couldn't just buy a ticket to a concert of Western classical music at the drop of a hat. You had to wait. Maybe there would be one a semester from visiting artists and that kind of thing. So it was a very rare thing. And in a very bizarre way, it actually made me more hungry. So I remember there would be these music magazines that you could buy in the shops. And then I would spend all my uh, pocket money on these magazines and my first CDs and it and and then just devour any kind of information about Western classical music that came through books. And then I was actually fortunate to have a couple of key people in my life who were just wonderful teachers, you know, at the school I went to. Was was it always classical music? Like, like did you dabble in rock or pop or any of that? Or was it really focused on classical music? Well, the good thing was at home, my parents had a very eclectic, a wonderfully eclectic collection of recordings. So my mom... Uh, was a ballet dancer and teacher, so she had a lot of Western classical music. My dad was a jazz fan, so I was just listening to, you know, one day it was Mozart, one day it was Miles Davis. And then, of course, we also had Sri Lankan traditional music, Indian classical music, and then in Dubai, of course, you could hear Middle Eastern music. Um, so a lot of Middle Eastern and South Asian music was just sort of hanging in the air. And that was just incredible. I didn't realize how valuable that was until years later. You know, it's the cliche. You leave home and then you discover what home is, right? And then it was only when I left to go to the West and study music, Western classical music formally, that all of these other cultural uh, musical influences started coming out. They wanted to find a sense of balance. So that's how the evolution happened. And um, so just, to, you know, to answer your first question, it began with experiments in seventh rate Mozart. And then I've, you know, and then it was like, then it started to become very pop influenced because all of my 12 year old friends were, you know, and I were listening to Michael Jackson and stuff. And the first big piece I wrote was actually this high school musical, you know, like I wrote a ton of songs in a very short amount of time. And we performed it and it was a hit, you know, and it was just wow. kind of, yeah, it was just kind of, you know, pop influenced uh, stuff. And my friends wrote the lyrics and I, you know, wrote all the music. But over time, uh, then I really found, you know, a crew of people to hang out with. I would write them pieces. I would, my, my style was very slowly developing. So did, did the bug of writing like hit you immediately? Like, did you become a composer at that point? I would say so. I was hit by the composition bug. As soon as I heard that Mozart recording, I went from just playing the piano to dabbling in creating my own chunks of material. I had no idea where they were going, but that was a very enjoyable process. So I wonder how your piano playing changed when you decided that you wanted to be more of a composer or you wanted to compose. Like, did your style become more material oriented and you, you played in such a way that you were composing versus playing in the way of you were performing? Actually, no. It, it, I mean, I guess my piano playing as a, as a kid probably deteriorated because I spent so many more hours trying to compose, you know, instead of practicing. Um, and another thing I remember happening was that between the age of, so from the time of that epiphany, to when I went off to music school um, uh, at the age of 18. So for those six years, I did, I do remember having a hunger to learn how to improvise. And I didn't know how to do it. Um, and so what I would do is, you know, I would take, you know, let's say a Beatles songbook and I would, I would play the song in the notated format. 
And then I would see the chord symbols and I would try and sort of elaborate a little bit. And it was pretty rudimentary. And thankfully, when I went off to music college, so I went to the Royal Northern College in the UK, that was the big first big move of my life. Um, and I, you know, I was suddenly enrolled in this full on Western classical composition degree. I, I felt so happy because I was suddenly around other students my age who just wanted the same stuff I wanted. They, they didn't have a jazz program at the time, but they had a one evening after school, shall we say, gathering where, uh, my very talented uh, jazz teacher would just unlock secrets of improvisation. You know, we would just go around the circle and start improvising and he would, and it was the sort of basic jazz language, which is such a great foundation, you know, two, five ones and learning what scale to play over what chord. And I wanted much, much more than what was on offer in that just one class. So he recommended a couple of books about specifically piano things, you know, how to build voicings and everything. So it started. And then, and then in my undergrad, I would, I would play with my friends and we would do gigs and function gigs. And, and it was just, you know, to earn money. And, and it was just a great foundation uh, for, for improvisation. It wasn't until I went to New York for my grad, graduate studies that I was suddenly around people who would improvise, but not necessarily just in the Western jazz language, you know. I mean, of course, New York was full of incredible kids who were playing, who had ridiculous uh, improv chops. But that's when I also met musicians from all over the globe. Um, and then we started having conversations about how improvisation worked in non-Western contexts. When you decide to go to the Royal Northern College of Music, at that point, are you, you knew that you were going to be a musician of some sort. That was your goal. Yes. Um, was there ever a time when it wasn't going to be music? Was it always music for you? No, it was always music. I mean, I still needed like oxygen. Uh, before I even thought, well, how can I turn this into a career? or a, or rather, you know, how will I earn money from this? Before any of those questions came up, I just wanted to do it all the time. And, and more as a composer than a player? I would say so. I would say so. I think I had more of a natural gift to create the music. Um, to this day, though, I, I consider myself a composer slash performer, because if you were to take the performance aspects out of my life, either by not letting me on the podium or not letting me near a piano, it would feel like a limb had been cut off. But I presume that the player part plays a big part in you, your composition. Absolutely. Like, I know that sounds stupid, but, but I presume that the better player you are, the better composer you are. No, and it's not a... Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a stupid question because now um, I would say... I, uh, I'm, a, I'm definitely a better conductor for being a composer. You know, I, I, I think I can, when I take apart a score, I understand it deeper because I'm, I'm active in the creative process and then vice versa, as you say, uh, which is why I'm always encouraging my students, you know, if they have talents in uh, multiple directions, if they, if they, if they're instrumentalists, I encourage them to start creating bits of their own material even if they have no aspirations to be a composer, just start dabbling in it, right? And then vice versa. Uh, if you're a composer, then, uh, and you have some instrumental facility, don't lose that um, because it will give you um, all of these things, just expand your perspective. Okay, so the thing that I'm curious about is you go to school and, and you get your degrees in composition. And then after that, you decide to f go to learn conducting why did you do that like why did you why did you find it necessary to become or study being a conductor after you've done your composition work so that's actually also an interesting story i fell into conducting 
perhaps how a lot of composers do, which is you write a piece and then it needs to be put together very quickly and it's a little too complex. So someone has to stand there and wave their arms, you know, to keep the musicians together. So that happened to me. And I guess I had some kind of natural aptitude for it. So then your other composer friends see that and they go, oh, can you conduct my piece, please? Because I do not want to stand up there, right? This is how a lot of, <laughs> this is how a lot of composers start. And so I, I tell uh, my conducting students, you know, who happen to be composers, this is a great way in. Because if you show some natural aptitude for this, all of your composer friends will want you to conduct their piece. And then you automatically start getting all the experience that young conductors are really looking for. So there are different ways in, right? And so it happened uh, to me that way. And as a result, I ended up getting a lot of experience as a conductor in new music first. You know, it wasn't core repertoire. So that was really good for the technique and problem solving skills and everything. And then I started to realize, wow, I really like this. Because what conducting is about is, it is music performance, but what is fascinating about the, uh, uh, conducting is that it's like composition in the sense that you do not have physical contact with the sound, right? It's not like sitting at the piano where you can feel sensually the piano under your fingers. It's not like holding the violin where you can, where the instrument is just right there. Instead, you're standing there in space in some kind of community setting where you've got people in front of you and through some kind of mysterious force of inspiration, you've got to get them to play, to make a sound that reflects what you have in your head. That's essentially what conducting is. And that really fascinated me. Uh, to this day, I'm fascinated by the, well, uh, let's list the aspects, right? Like, so there's the technical means of sound production when you have no physical contact on the sound. So you're relying on other people. Then there's the leadership aspect. There's the community aspect. There is the nonverbal aspect of how the body is moving, right? Like when, when, they, when, when psychologists talk to you about how people converse, there's a staggering percentage that is nonverbal. Apparently, it's only about 20 to 30% of our communication that's verbal, right? Um, and that, so when you put that in a musical setting, it's uh, for someone who has the technique, it's just fascinating watching such a conductor elicit something when you know that it's this kind of mysterious nonverbal thing. It's just, you know, who they are and uh, what they kind of embody personality wise. That plus the technique makes them get something very interesting. Uh, so that I continue to find fascinating and it's just a great outlet for me in terms of music performance that's so different to being at the piano where you can have this sort of immediate gratification of the sound. In conducting, you have to come with a plan. You've got to come with an imagination and then you've got to work with a group of people to realize this vision. How much does the conducting or your, your knowledge of con being a conductor influence your composition or does it at all? It does hugely. I would say probably... Unexpectedly, uh, when it comes to orchestral music. So, for, for example, when I'm writing a, a piece of orchestral music, uh, I draw upon a lot of practical information that I've gleaned as a conductor from hours and hours on the podium. And that really helps. You know, it helps in terms of how you notate it, how you make the music come off the page easily. Uh, but those are more sort of practical things. I would say that on, on a more conceptual and creative level, one accumulates many hours of just looking at great orchestral pieces because you're learning, you know, in classical music, you, you have a relationship to the tradition and the repertoire. And so you read those uh, like great novels, you know. And another thing I say to students is you can't rush that process. It's just, it's this incremental accumulation of information over years to the point where you can, as a composer, imagine some kind of sonority you want to create, let's say, in, in an orchestral context. And if you're lucky, then you can say, oh, well, that bit is like what Ravel did in Daphnis. Uh, so let me grab the score, right? And 
a lot of composers can do this, but that just comes from years and years of knowing um, which book, which score to take off the shelf and, and which page to, to open it to. Another silly question. If, if you decide you want to be a conductor and you, you wind up getting your initial experience conducting new music, is there any difference in terms of the way you might conduct new, verse, new music versus the classics? Like, if you're, if, if you're conducting your material versus conducting Beethoven, is there a difference in the way you conduct? There isn't, and I don't think there should be. I mean, you are deconstructing the score with the same kind of rigor, hopefully. The only advantage you have with new music is that you are likely to be able to speak to the composer, right? So this is a huge advantage uh, because for these new pieces I conduct, I, I enjoy then taking my composer hat off and just, okay, I just think I'm a conductor and I have the advantage of picking up the phone and calling my colleague and they can tell me uh, what motivated this particular section and what they want to achieve in this one bit emotionally and everything. And that's just so helpful. And then when I just go back to my own score study, it's just the same kind of decoding of information. And then I just have to make it work practically. With a Beethoven symphony, you don't have the advantage of speaking to the composer. And so it's very much like det a detective work. You arrive at the crime scene and there's the there's, you know, you arrive maybe a few minutes after forensics and there's the, the sort of chalk outline and you've, you've, been, you've been told that someone died, but you just don't know how it happened. So you have to sort of fumble around in the dark with all these clues and, and, and figure it out and, and try to sort of clear away any sort of traditional baggage that has sort of accumulated and just kind of look at the information and to go back to your previous question, you know, how does your work as a composer affect that? That's where I start to realize, ah, well, this is like a blueprint, the same way I'm leaving a blueprint for someone else uh, that I, you know, want to play a piece of mine. So now it's my duty to sort of, yes, decode the information, the ink that's on the page, but then ultimately arrive at some kind of uh, mission or message that the composer wants to communicate to his or her audience. And that is the most exciting part of the process. That's where the, the music making takes on a more theatrical element. And that's what I really enjoy. So if we go back to that, we'll, we'll start with the composer because this is how I know you. But you go to school for composition. At that point, tell me what you think you were hoping to achieve. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you're now an award-winning composer. People come to you and say, hey, I want to commission you for works. But I presume it takes a while until those opportunities afforded to you. So when you get out of school, what is, what is your plan? What is your goal? And how do you hope to get to that point where people are coming to you and asking you to compose stuff? Gosh, I mean, you know, when I go back to that time, I have been incredibly lucky education-wise, so I'm always trying to pass on that knowledge. Um, but I remember at the time, I was just lucky to be in, an, in a highly stimulating creative environment where people were just encouraging me to discover all kinds of things. And I think that's the best kind of environment you can create for any young artist, you know, just create this really nice, safe, fun, creative environment where they can just be encouraged to explore their gifts in a very organic way, right? So uh, the same way I sort of tumbled into conducting and tumbled into improvisation the best discoveries are going to happen in a very organic way. So, so that's the best kind of environment that you can uh, foster for, for young artists. And then towards the end of my undergrad, I was very lucky to receive my first professional commission. And this came from the Apollo saxophone quartet, who I think still are very big in the UK, and they were faculty members. So, I mean, just think of what it was like. I received this commission 
as an undergrad from these amazing faculty members, you know, who are playing all of your or Europe and and I, um, and and they, you know, and and they were playing at such a high standard that I really sort of applied myself and created um, a piece which they actually still play today. So then I realized, ah, okay, so this is how it happens, you know. There's a transaction here. They expect you to. They they ask you to write something. They pay you some money, and and then you you just you create something that's utterly personal. And I I I just continued like this for several years, just seeking out these commissions, and and they started coming. And um, of course, you know, word spreads, and I was able to sort of pay the bills. And I think one realizes that okay this is this is how how it goes like you you go from project to project and what you're trying to do is create incrementally over time this artistic voice so when you say seeking out um these opportunities how does that work do you just go to your musician friends and go i can compose something for you like how does that happen or do you ever just compose without a commission as a student, you can be in a luxurious position in a degree program because you can just decide, okay, I want to write a piece for such and such, uh, and and the school will play it. So that started happening. I mean, I think I think I probably my my violin sonata, which is my the first piece that I wrote. I, I was nineteen years old. I was in my second year, and it's still played. In fact, it was just recorded. Um, I, I wrote that because I was just living down the hall in the dormitory from a fantastic violinist, and we just decided to collaborate. But then I mentioned later on I got my first professional commission. And then I think it quickly shifted towards commissions that were coming in. And I think in that respect, I was lucky. So I was able to sort of kill two birds with one stone. I was actually receiving some income while taking on projects. And now it's a completely different life in the sense that now it's purely commissions. I, I mean, I do not have time to write something just on a whim, right? In fact, at this point in my life, I I kind of trust that the universe is just going to bring the right opportunities, you know, because because certain people come into my orbit. And then if I resonate with their personalities and that kind of thing, I feel, ah, this is right for me at this time in my life. And I've had many successes that way where projects have come in and just through wonderful uh, colleagues and people and musicians and incredible artists. And, and when they describe a sort of just a sort of hazy vision and, and we, we put together the, the vision for the project together, I realize in hindsight, I like the song cycle, I would not have imagined that just sitting in a room by myself, you know? So for, for example, when we talk about the identity song cycle, I wouldn't have thought, okay, I can mm, perhaps like, let's like, let, you know, can I hear a sort of Western classical baritone with a sort of world jazz ensemble? Can I see myself playing in it? You know, I just wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of that. So I like this sort of still very, very organic uh, lifestyle of how these things happen and, and, and how you develop the idea with people. Uh, without having some kind of crystal ball, you know, or planning too much. How easy do those ideas come? If I say, Danuk, I want you to work on something, it's about this. And then, you know, I, I'm sure that people don't come with you to you with really concrete ideas. It's probably more of a, an idea that's to be worked on. But I guess, how do you ever struggle with that writing process and then the other thing is how do you estimate time to say yeah I'm going to do a 45 minute piece how long does it take like do you know at this point in your life how long it would to take to do certain projects I do roughly but it's it's still very difficult to estimate because there are so many factors involved I mean now I'm a I'm a, I'm a dad you know we have a nine month old so life is even more organic and uh, so things, creative processes take longer. And, and, and of course, there are variables in terms of, you know, maybe when you will get the lyrics for something or when something will happen or 
um, the complexity of writing a particular piece. So there are so many factors. And, and you know, it is an industry standard thing. You have to try and estimate for the commissioner, you know, how long this will take because the commissioner has their own timeline. So these are all very practical questions. But, um, but to answer your first question, in terms of the sort of conceptual planning, I do take a long time over that part of the process. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. Certainly at this point in my life, I'm just thinking, you know, every project is like a story that's being told. And if I'm not clear about the message of that project, it's just not going to be very sharp in terms of uh, its efficacy. So I do take a long time. I've always been like this, but now it's just getting more it's 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 getting just more uh, ingrained, I guess. This 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 way of working is uh, I have to really think for weeks, if not months, about what kind of message this piece is going to be imbued with, so that I can just make things as clear as possible. So an example is the uh, the piece for the Banff uh, competition, which was about the theft of the Mona Lisa. I spent a long time thinking, well, you know, if, if, if one is going to write a virtuoso string quartet for some of the best players in the world, and you've got a time limit of, let's say, nine minutes, what, what is your statement going to be? I mean, how are you going to fill that nine minutes? I mean, I could just write some kind of flashy music and they can play it and then that could be that. But what is this piece going to try to say? And uh, I remember when I was trying to answer all of these questions, because I had a lot of lead time, you know, they tell you quite far in advance. It was right, I was in the depths of the pandemic. And I, I remember the first thought that came to my mind was, okay, this is not going to be a piece about pandemic angst, right? <laughs> I'm not going to emerge from this pandemic and have people listen to, you know, my thoughts on sort of solitude at, in a difficult time in our history. It's not going to be about that. It's going to be about something gloriously escapist. And then from that thought, it went to, well, you know, who who doesn't like a good heist story? And so then I Googled, you know, famous art heists. Of course, I you know, I love the Oceans films. I love, you know, I watch them a lot. Uh, and I was just thinking, you know, and then you find these lists on, on Google, you know, top 10 heists of all time. So I was kind of going through all of this. This is a sort of research and development phase of any kind of project, which I just love. And so I would read tons of these articles. And then suddenly there was a story about the theft of the Mona Lisa in 1911 with all of these ludicrous details, uh, which were totally true. But they were ludicrous enough that you could put them in a Hollywood film. And I thought, that's it. That, that's the story. That, that'll be a fun escapade for a virtuoso string quartet. That's a piece. I, at this point, when you're working this out and trying to come up with the idea, are you thinking musically at all? Like, are there notes flowing through your head or are you just talking about the concept? Not at all. In fact, I, I try to avoid thinking musically. You can you can sort of hear snippets before a piece is written, and I'm just imagining. I try to. I'm a very visual person, so I try to imagine the players on a stage, and I visualize the stage, and I try to visualize and hear that moment where where they are interacting with the audience, and they have the audience hopefully in the you know uh, in the palm of their hands, and. Um, I try to sort of, then I might hear things, but then I don't rely on that too much. I think more about the message. And then I develop that conceptual side of things. So I guess this is really like someone, I'm just doing it through the medium of music, but if if um, if one were a filmmaker, you would be just spending years thinking about, well, what story do I want to tell next? And through which actors and what kind of people? What amazed me was we had the chance to shoot I guess five or six different performances of your piece at the Bamstring Quartet competition. And it's a piece written down on paper and there was a difference between one quartet's interpretation versus another. And sometimes quite a bit of a difference. 
um, and not being a, a you know a musician and certainly not well versed in classical music I was just I was amazed at how different some interpretations were because in my mind I think notes on a page everybody executes it it's the same and it's it's certainly not that um, but it was an amazing thing to see is is to see one piece that you wrote performed by at least five different quartets and seeing the difference between them and how does how do you react to something like that once you put it on paper and seeing it interpreted differently well in the case of this piece particularly the creative latitude was built into the piece and it was expected of the performers so if you actually look at the score and the performance notes i think the first performance note is you know be creative be original or something like that but then of course just to hear i remember the first day of rehearsal where i would just go around and listen to all these different interpretations i was quite stunned by the originality of the thinking and how diverse the interpretations were and so my my work was really done in the sense that i all i had to do was just fix a couple of balanced things and but but just essentially tell them please lean in to your interpretation and have fun with that and and what does it i mean must give you gratification when they say yeah i think we're going to be playing this for the next season that it wasn't just for the competition but you know at, at least i know at least two quartets who said yeah we're going to continue playing this for our shows in the future oh that's wonderful and and i think it's had its it's had its paris premiere it's had a chicago premiere it's receiving a uk premiere uh soon so it's 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 wonderful to see that this piece is uh has legs you know as they say Do you know was there a point in your life where you thought yeah I think I'm good at this I think you know you realize that you have a natural aptitude for things but it's all relative I mean now on any day of content creation or practice you're just thinking well what's the next goal and how do I get my voice to the next level and how do i tell a better story or how do i make the sound i want on the piano you know it's this sort of gloriously endless process of art making that keeps you going so you're a conductor you're a performer you're a composer amongst other things but how much of that time is composition it's mostly composition but then i'll have periods where you know i'll get to the end of a project and it's been quite exhausting and i'm quite happy to take you know a good few weeks to maybe two months off and that feels good and then i can just think about performance or something but it's it's hard you know essentially you're one i i'm trying to keep three things going at the same time it's just the life i just chose for myself i guess that wasn't the plan it just happened then i leaned into it and now i'm in it right i could i could not give up any of these things so my task is to keep them all in balance and that's very difficult well i guess the other thing is you teach so it's really not just three it's four major things um i'm curious as to if composing is majority of your time or a good chunk of your time how did the pandemic affect you because i presume being a composer it's very much a very solitude endeavor and and so i don't know if you even noticed there was a difference but i i presume that i i wonder how how it affected you did it affect you in in a in a big way yeah so the pandemic only really affected me as a performer all of my gigs got canceled right and so i felt very very cut off from the act of performance and all of those wonderful people i was playing with uh but from a composer's point of view and like my other composer colleagues we just went at it like we just spent even more time uh in solitude uh creating these pieces so tell me about the performance side so i did see the 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 trio that was in identity um and i i got to see your abilities as a piano player but what else are you doing like what 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 happened how often are you performing and what kind of stuff are you doing Well I perform fairly regularly as a conductor I would say maybe 4 to 8 programs a year and then on top of that and then 
when you talk about the piano, then I'm playing with my trio, with uh, also with other collaborators. Sometimes I, um, here's an example. I was in Boston recently with my my dear colleague Kinan Azmi, the uh, clarinetist who I wrote my concerto for, and and also the orchestra A Far Cry, who are a conductorless chamber orchestra based out of Boston. Incredible musicians. And so I, I was actually playing the piano part in my own concerto and then pairing it with other pieces that involved improvisation. So it's now sort of a very organic mix of things. And uh, I just try to spread these engagements out through the year where I get a nice balance of variety in terms of project and then consistency in terms of that I'm playing often enough. And, that, and then time seems to fly. Musically, where where are you happiest? When are you happiest? That's an interesting question, you know, because the solitude of composing has its own rewards, but then what's difficult is the solitude itself. So you don't get to engage with other musicians and get that sort of real-time reward uh, for the sound. You have to wait for the performance or you have to wait for the rehearsal. So that has its pros and cons. And then... Uh, but then performance, particularly with people who inspire you, is this huge kind of dopamine rush, right? So that makes me very happy. And as long as I'm doing at least one of these things in the day, you know, which I, I said I need like oxygen, then then I'm happy. Okay, so sometimes when I'm given an assignment to edit and I'm I'm giving raw footage and I have to go through everything, there's a this moment or there's a period where I go through some major self-loathing because it's just difficult. I don't know where it's going. Um, I think, God, I'm not good enough to do this or this is crap or whatever. But it, it happens. And, and not every time, but it happens. Do you go through that in composition? Oh, gosh, all the time. All the time. I mean, it's <laughs> there are some incredibly difficult days where you just think, oh gosh, this material is just terrible. And and if there's a problem that you know needs to be solved and you don't have the solution, that's pretty agonizing. Certain things get easier over time because your technical gifts are uh, sharper than they used to be. But then of course it's all relative, right? Like the problems are now more complex. So I, I don't think that that pain ever goes away. It's just part of the process. Uh, I do rely on people, my my colleagues, and my wife has a great ear too. So, you know, I, I like to play bits of material for people just to 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 get their feedback. I, I do thrive on that. I don't I don't function one hundred percent in solitude. It doesn't suit me well. I like that sort of kind of testing uh, aspect of it, where you get the feedback. Um, so that really helps. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, but composition is very difficult. I, w- I will say it's probably of the three things that I do conducting, improvising, playing, you know, the piano and then composition. Composition is probably the hardest. Uh, it's painstaking. It's labor intensive. Oh my gosh. And when you're writing, you know, a big piece and an orchestral piece or something like that, my gosh, it's just so labor intensive and you can't outsource any of that stuff. Right. You do. <laughs> You do every single thing. Well, which I find, you know, so I, I saw you compose for the trio and, and I can understand, maybe I don't understand that, but I can get my head around that idea. But the fact that you compose for a quartet, which would be a string quartet, which would be quite different from a jazz trio or an orchestra, which would be way different from both. I mean, I presume everything's a challenge to you and, and probably an interesting challenge to you, but... Is it? Do you have a preference on the type of things that you'd rather compose than other things, or the, the the bigger the challenge, the better it is for you? No, I I don't think in those terms. I think in terms of the project. So if the project comes along, and then the project necessitates certain instrumental forces, then I realize, oh, okay. Then then I just work to see if the right story is being told by the right instrumental forces. And the right uh, and the right people, so it's kind of like you're casting your actors, right? Then, then you just accept the logistical challenges of that particular production. But in in terms of to answer your question about the sort of writing for different instruments, that's a more sort of technical 
thing that one just has to acquire incrementally over time as a composer. So I'm not a string player. I've had to learn painstakingly over the years how to write effectively for string instruments to the point where now I love it. Like I just love writing music for strings. I just just love the instruments and, and, and the sounds that they make and the colors they produce. And I have very, very close string player colleagues who are quite excellent, who are practically on kind of like speed dial. So if I have any questions, you know, they're just a text and a screenshot away. Hey, have a look at this. And, and uh, am I going about this the right way? And so is it, are you composing through the piano or are you like, or is it all in your head? How does that work? Especially with instruments that's not a piano. Like if you're composing for a string quartet, are you, is it all in your head or is it, are you writing down the piece through your piano playing? No, again, my way of working and everyone works differently, of course, but my way of working is as conceptual as possible. So I actually try to like, try to develop the idea as much as possible without thinking of the medium. And then it's fun trying to find the way for the medium to meet the idea. So for example, uh, with the with the Mona Lisa piece, it's just like thinking about how we want to tell the story. There just happen to be four string players on stage. And then once you have a clear idea about how the story needs to be told and in what kind of structure and what kind, what kind of highlights, then the more technical problem to solve is, well, how are we going to get these virtuoso string players to make the sounds? And um, I deliberately try to keep myself away from the piano because it's just a different, it, it puts you in a, in a it, it, it creates a certain kind of, different kind of creative constraint. So it's notes on a page. It is, it is, yes. But, ult- but the notes are, um, the very last in the chain of decision-making. It's the idea that's very important, that is imperative. And then the notes, and then and the last decision is, is this an F or an F sharp? Uh, and I tell my students, you know, don't think about whether something is an F or an F sharp unless you have an idea first. So in the case of a string quartet, I use focusing on one instrument more than the other? Like if you're looking at a bar of music, are you starting with the first violin and figuring where that goes? Or are you thinking in terms of all four instruments and what happens in that bar of music? Well, it can be anything. You know, uh, everything is a creative problem to solve. And one thing we learn about creative problem solving is that every situation has a different point of entry. So it's like you imagine a box and you're trying to get inside this box. Um, and, and, but there are different ways in, you know, you can come in from the corner, you can come in from under the box or the top or whatever. Um, and so depending on the context of the particular problem, you find your way in from a different, um, vantage point, if you like. So tell me what you're working on now, if you're uh, able to share that. Yes, well, actually, at the moment, I'm just focusing on the song cycle because this is going to be a big project. So we're working towards, we've already done five songs. It was released as a digital product. And now we're working towards uh, a full show, right? Uh, So um, at least an hour of music uh, or more uh, as a self-contained program with uh, four musicians on stage. And then beyond that, it's going to be, there's going to be an orchestral version, right? So this is a, this is a very big project with many parts. Will you be one of the four people on stage or I guess would that depend on your schedule or how's that working out? No, I definitely will be. I, I realized early on that I wanted to be a part of uh, the performance of this piece. I know through editing the, the studio version of it, your studio performance, there were moments of pure joy in your eye when you were playing there. And it was just neat to see because I don't see you in that way as a composer, but to see you play and especially play with great other great musicians. But, you know, just I know when I was editing it, I could just tell how much you were enjoying yourself on, on that recording. Thanks. Yes, I'm glad that the feeling was, you know, palpable in the room. My final question to you, 
Do you have goals at this point in your life? You know, that's a very interesting question because now I talk with students about this. And I'm at a juncture in my life. You know, we've moved city. Uh, I'm a parent. I'm now thinking about what, uh, what the next horizon is and what my goals are. And I'm, I yes, I do have goals. You know, I want to continue to develop my artistic voice. I want to continue. A very broad goal is I just want to continue enjoying making music with inspiring people. I mean, I've been very fortunate to be able to do that for all these years. And it's just such a blessing. And I just want to keep meeting people who inspire me. And I think, but on a more specific level, probably no. I think I'm balancing those goals with that thing I told you about where, uh, you know, I trust that the universe will bring the right projects or will sort of try and entice me with the right projects, you know. So I'm I'm just kind of letting that unfold organically and um, I'm enjoying that. Um, after many, many years of freelancing, I moved to Ottawa because I now have some wonderful students at the University of Ottawa. So this is another chapter. So I, I have goals for what we'd like to do pedagogically and that kind of thing. And uh, more broadly, the message is, you know, if I've been fortunate to uh, develop this artistic voice and essentially tell my story as an individual, culturally, personally, through this wonderful medium, then how can I help young artists do the same? Particularly the ones who feel that they don't have access, right? Like I, I was lucky, I always had access, but not everyone has access. So the question is, can you feel empowered to tell your story through this wonderful medium? And um, it is a beautifully blank canvas for you to tell your story. So the question is, you know, will you have the courage to do it? Well, I've had the pleasure of working with, with your material a number of times. And it's always, it's always a thrill and it's always challenging and it's always beautiful. So thank you for that. And thank you for doing this. Thank you, Marco. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.